Good morning. If you could, please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 66, that's the last chapter. And we're going to look at verses 18 through 24. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Isaiah chapter 66, verses 18 through 24. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud, who draw the bow to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands afar off, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries, To my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from sabbath to sabbath all flesh shall come to worship before me declares the lord and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me for their worm shall not die their fire shall not be quenched and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh you can be seated as i pray Lord, as I preach now, and as we all listen now to your words, enable us by your Spirit to do it as right worship before a holy God. Focus us and cause us to see your beauty and your excellence above everything else that we love. In Christ's name, amen. Now, when we switch from one book of the Bible to another, as we're doing today, um, we, we have been studying Galatians here, and uh, as we switch to Isaiah, I feel like uh, it's useful to take a moment to reorient ourselves. You know, the New, the New Testament epistles, such as Galatians, they, um, they involve a lot of technical language. They're very precise and... Um, leave very little to imagination. You know exactly what the Apostle Paul is getting at if you, uh, if you study it. The prophets, however, paint with uh, a much broader brush, so to speak. You're meant to step back and take in some grand vistas. You're not meant as much to, um, to lean in and, and try to um, obsess over minute details. 
And I just mention that because if we get that wrong, it might be a bit like going to the Grand Canyon and spending your time snapping pictures of the parking lot. So we need to adjust our eyes and we need to take in the broad views of prophetic literature. And, and it does take a little bit of work to readjust ourselves because we do spend so much time in the New Testament usually. But that's good for us, right? We need to be acquainted with all of the genres of Scripture or else we'll be spiritually malnourished. And I, I think the themes of Isaiah in particular are just so important for our Christian life. Um, I mean, I'd have to compare Isaiah to something of, of like um, uh, Romans, Hebrews, and Revelation all squished together. Only it was written 600 years earlier. So there's a lot of riches here for us. And um, Isaiah gives us a dual message, really, throughout the whole book. A dual message of judgment and hope. God's rebellious and idolatrous people would be purged, but a righteous remnant would be preserved by his grace. So those who presume upon God, those who think that they can um, get by with uh, just some rote motions... And superficial worship, well, their scorn for God's holiness will eventually lead to destruction. But for others who actually tremble at God's word, Isaiah says that restoration awaits. Through a suffering servant, God would create a covenant family from all nations who are awaiting the hope of a renewed creation. So all of those themes from from across Isaiah are going to come to a head in our passage here today. And I should back up and revisit the fact that, uh, yes, our missions conference is this week, and that's that's why we're taking this detour from Galatians. So as James said, if if you didn't notice it on your way in, I encourage you to stop by the table in the foyer and sign up for the Saturday breakfast or or the, um, the banquet at night. Because during missions conference, we as a church are taking time to think about and to pray about and to celebrate how God is taking his good news message to every people group on the, earth, on the face of the earth. And that's really important for us to think about because this is a time when God has said he will accomplish these things. This is the time of global missions. Now, regarding time, it's, it's just a fact of life that if you, if you don't know what time it is, you're not going to be doing the right thing. For example, my three-year-old son, if he wakes up, which he does sometimes, he wakes up at 4 a.m. and he turns on his lights and he starts playing quite loudly with his toys, that's a problem. <laughs> He's mistaken about what time it is and as a result, he isn't pursuing the right activity, namely sleep. Um, or another example, if, if I'm unaware of the calendar, right, broadly what time it is, um, I could forget that I'm supposed to call an old friend on, on such and such a day, or I could forget that it's Valentine's Day and someone could be very hurt as a result. Um, my, my 96-year-old grandmother, uh, when she loses her bearings, she can forget to go down to lunch in the dining hall. Or she can miss out on the joy and the anticipation of the Advent season because to her, it's, it's just another day, right? So what I'm getting at is that we depend upon designated times and seasons in order to appropriately focus ourselves on what we should be doing. 
And have you ever stopped to ask what season it is in history? What should the church be doing? And I don't, I don't just mean our local church. I mean the church with a capital C. What are we meant to be focused on in this time between the two comings of Christ? Well, Scripture doesn't really leave us confused on that point. Jesus himself tells us what should be happening in this season. In Matthew twenty four fourteen, he says, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So this emphasis of the gospel going to all nations, that's, that's really what's on the big screen of world history between the two comings of Christ. And as we'll see today, it's a period of time that was foreseen by the prophet Isaiah long before the time of Christ. The time is coming, he said in verse 18. Now verse 18 is really a summary of the bulk of this passage. God knows the works and the thoughts of all people. It can't go on like this forever, as, as the rest of Isaiah paints. Um, humanity bound in oppression and idolatry, hypocritical worship. It can't go on like that. And God is going to gather humanity for a new reality. Those who come will experience transforming mercy. And be ushered into eternal joy of life with God forever. And those who will not be gathered will be expelled from the city to come. And these events won't just happen in a corner of the Middle East. No, God's purposes are going to come to fruition in a global manner. He would gather all nations and all tongues. So in the verses before us today, we're going to look at the gathering of the nations in verses 18 to 20. The gathering of the nations. And then we'll look at the worship of the nations in 21 to 23. And lastly, we'll look at the judgment of the nations in verse 24. So the gathering of the nations. Isaiah has, has painted a picture throughout his book of how false worship is obscuring the character of God and in response, God will act. He will gather them to show them his glory. But how will they see his glory? How will humanity see the glory of God? That is a mind-blowing thought. Um, earlier in, in the book, in chapter 6, Isaiah, at the start of his ministry, he's caught up into this vision of the throne room of God. He sees the glory of God. And needless to say, he was completely undone by it, totally overwhelmed. Nothing like this had been recorded before. And now here at the end of the book, Isaiah is triumphantly announcing that the nations, all nations, will see the glory of God. How could such a worldwide privilege come about? Well, we're told how it will happen. The Lord will set a sign among them. A sign will bring about this gathering. A sign will allow the nations to see the glory of God. What is this sign? Well, it's, it's not wrong, but it might be too simplistic to think that Isaiah has the symbol of a cross in his mind. But there's plenty in Isaiah that his original audience could have latched on to, to, to ask, what is this sign? 
in chapter 7, there's the sign, same word, of a miraculous birth. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Or, the sign could be the sight of the suffering servant, described in chapters 52 and 53. It says, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. In this way he shall sprinkle many nations... Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. That, that could be the sign. Or could the sign be the miraculous expansion of the people of God that's described here in chapter 66 in verses 7 and 9? The prophet asks, Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? So what's the sign? Well, I I think the answer could be yes to all of these. Let's say that the sign is the miraculous birth, the pure life, the shameful death, the powerful resurrection of the Christ that created a new people, a people that would one day possess the nations and populate the desolate cities. So in short, we could say that the sign is is the Christ event. Humanity is gathered by this sign. And it makes me think of um, John chapter 12, verse 32, when Jesus, uh, when he, he was thinking about all that his crucifixion would accomplish. And he said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. But we get the impression that this gathering doesn't happen all at once. It seems to be much like the ripple effect when you throw a stone into a pond. It's certain, but it happens in stages or cycles. From those gathered, we read that survivors are then sent to gather others. Survivors. We're left asking, what did they survive? It's not the first time that this term has been used in Isaiah, and survivors seems to refer to people who have come to the Lord to escape the, the fate that awaits idolaters. So in other words, these people have sought refuge in the Lord, and therefore they have been deemed to have already survived the judgment to come. These survivors are true worshipers who will go out to the nations And I bet as we read these place names in uh, verse 19, you might be scratching your heads a bit. Uh, I'll try to make it easy for you. These are all ancient place names for civilizations around the Mediterranean Sea. So it goes uh, west to east along North Africa, and then east to west along southern Europe. And it's really just representing the, the ends of the earth as known to Isaiah's audience at that time. Interestingly, these locations, Tarshish, Pol, Lud, Javan, etc., they are covered, um, these locations with updated names are covered by the list that Sarah read earlier in Acts chapter 2. So at Pentecost, we see that the events of this chapter began to unfold. But obviously, that doesn't mean that the, the passage is totally fulfilled because we see that it's talking about the coastlands far away, and indeed all nations and tongues mentioned in verse 18. 
Well, just a word here about nations uh, in this context, in most contexts throughout the Bible. It's not really talking about political nations. It's, it's not like the work of this ingathering will be done as soon as there's a church within the political boundaries of each member of the UN. No, it's, it's referring to all peoples, not all political nations. And that's why even though there are healthy churches here in Canada, we still see a need to give special focus to unreached peoples, such as First Nations or the Quebecois. Or even though there are thriving churches among the majority Chinese, we still highlight unreached people groups like Tibetans or Inner Mongols or Huizhou, ethnicities that are within the boundaries of China, but they're still without a viable gospel witness because of the ethno-linguistic boundaries that exist. So it's talking about ethnicities. It's talking about people groups. Don't worry too much about pinpointing Tubal and Javan. They're representative of ethnicities that had no knowledge of God. It is interesting, though, that Lud is mentioned as those who draw the bow. I don't know if Isaiah is pointing out a curiosity about this people group, that they did warfare differently, or... Maybe it's frightening to him and, and the ancient Israelites that um, these bow warriors are, are out there somewhere. Either way, I think it's worth noting that this work, God's gathering of the nations, it, it frequently does require his people to go to ethnicities that seem strange and dangerous to our native way of thinking. Maybe to tribes that are under the influence of the Taliban. Maybe to North Korea. Well, these survivors are to go to places that have not heard of God's fame or seen his glory. And their purpose is to declare among the nations God's glory, that glory that is revealed most perfectly in the coming of Christ. Starting in verse 20, we read of the results of this. It says, And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. Now, if you were part of the the Jewish people in Isaiah's time, these words must have seemed really strange. My brothers from the nations. Because so many times in Israel's history, In our own Bible, we see that there's an emphasis on keeping the idolatrous nations out. We have to maintain the purity of the community of faith by keeping it all in the family of Israel. But here, we're suddenly seeing foreigners called brothers. It makes no sense unless something had happened to make the foreigners clean. And we know it had. The sign again. The atonement accomplished by Jesus for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, bringing a foreigner into the camp was not something polluted, but rather something clean, an acceptable offering to the Lord who had taken his new creation program global. And this was the seed for the truth that Peter would articulate 600 years later in Acts chapter 10 when he said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. 
Friends, we see here that missions dies where racism or a sense of superiority are allowed to thrive. When we write off whole cultures as bankrupt or hopeless, then we're calling God's gospel powerless. When we say, I sure hope one of them doesn't move next door, or I hope that none of them are in my kid's class, well, we're calling God's gospel powerless. And even when we want to speak of Christ to others, but we do it in a patronizing manner because, oh, the poor dears are really clueless. We're forgetting where we came from. We're forgetting that we, too, were impure enemies of God. And we still need the gospel so desperately in our own lives as well. So this is a call to remember that behind every face, behind every culture, even behind every ignorant practice, we should see people who are made in the image of God. And we should pray that they would fear him and look to him so that we might one day embrace them as brothers and sisters. And in the meantime, we will invite them into our homes and into our lives. What God has made clean, do not call common. In fact, at the end of verse 20, the brothers are pictured as an acceptable offering brought to the Lord in a clean vessel. The Apostle Paul would later allude to this same imagery to explain the nature of his ministry. In Romans, he says that he is a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Also in verse 20, these brothers are pictured as being brought to my holy mountain Jerusalem. Now I'd love to preach a whole sermon just on this, uh, but I can't. So I'll just say that Jerusalem here is not the historical city. Rather, it's the future realm coming down out of heaven. In Revelation 21, Jerusalem is pictured as a sort of garden, mountain, temple city. Galatians 4.26 says, The Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Hebrews 12.22 encourages Christians by saying, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So don't picture here the evangelist taking converts on a physical pilgrimage to the Holy Land. It's not like that at all. Instead, picture, picture them um, handing out citizenship cards to a glorious realm that has started to emerge but isn't fully manifest. Or better yet, picture them telling children who were born in exile, you can now return to the land of which you've always dreamed You see, we are all exiles from the Garden of Eden, aren't we? But those from whom we receive the good news of Christ have now brought us back into the living and the nourishing presence of God. And that's what the holy mountain Jerusalem is all about, the realm of the righteous king. And what do we make then of this imagery of there's horses, there's chariots, there's litters, there's mules and camels. It's like a circus. Um, is this just a bad joke suggesting that the Christian life is going to be one bumpy ride? No, it's not a bad joke. That was, but the text isn't. Actually, I think the point here is just that any and every means is going to be used 
to gather in the nations, any and every means. So we can think of how orphanages and hospitals can first embody Christ for communities. We can think of how businesses and NGOs can be utilized to get behind the borders of hostile regimes. We can think of language learning software that makes it easy for missionaries to get a head start. We can think of airplanes that bring missionaries through jungles, across deserts, over to remote islands. As we'll learn about on Saturday night at the banquet when Steve Schantz from Transworld Radio speaks, we can picture how all forms of media and technology are used to transmit the gospel. Established circuits of travel and trade, those can be accessed to organically spread church planting networks. That's what this is getting at. Any and every means will be used to gather in the nations. With this God orchestrating it all, no distance, no difficulty will stand in the way of bringing the brothers home. So praise God for that creativity. And perhaps some here in this room should even pray that their God-given ingenuity and work ethic would play a role in that process. By any and all means, this is the gathering of the nations. But as we come to verse 21, we need to ask, what is the purpose of this gathering? What are the nations being brought together for? Here in verses 21 to 23, we'll see the worship of the nations. The worship of the nations. Verse 21 reads, And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. In the time before Christ, the priests and the Levites were descendants of um, a unique bloodline, and they would serve in the temple, or they were designated to generally facilitate worship for the people of God. They would oversee sacrifices, they would lead congregational singing, they would receive gifts for the Lord, and um, they would teach people the law of God. All these forms of worship were the domain of priests and Levites. So we see here that the bringing of brothers is meant to lead to the facilitating of worship. And that shouldn't be a big surprise for us. John Piper has famously noted that missions exist because worship doesn't. The goal of the church isn't missions itself. Rather, the goal of the church is to enjoy and to honor God and to see God enjoyed and honored everywhere where he's presently not. So missions is simply what we call that process of spreading this worship of God, which is the greatest good in the universe. So the ingathering that's being described here, it could only be counted as success if God is worshipped as a result. And here it's promised that he will be. He will raise up from the nations redeemed ones who can then turn and minister to others, teaching worship to them. Again, think of how mystifying it must have been for the Jewish readers of this from their own scriptures. Levites raised up among Gentile peoples? It's a contradiction of terms, right? How could any pure ministry come from the Gentiles who were, they grew up worshiping statues, they were engaged in temple prostitution or murdering their rivals or channeling spirits? I mean, how does that make sense? How could they be called Levites? Only the lens of Christ can make sense of this radical expansion of worship. 
where peoples who were once enslaved to sin become the very consecrated ones leading others in worship. As First Peter tells the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And the worship that these new priests and Levites are going to teach and to share, we see that it's not a passing fad. It's not a, tol- a temporary cultural phenomenon. Uh, in verse 22, we read that, As the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. This is a new and lasting reality that's being formed. It will preserve a people forever. Our identity as God's children and heirs will be as secure as the new heavens and earth are permanent. This is one new family from all nations, all the offspring of the Christ, the suffering servant of whom it was promised in chapter 53, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. And we, the offspring, we will not only remain, but will worship. It says, from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath. Just as the priests and Levites in this passage have taken on a broader meaning, so too the Jewish calendar becomes imagery for the faithful and regular and legitimate worship of God. It's described in terms that that would have made sense to Isaiah's original audience. But let's not be distracted from the main point here. All flesh worshiping. All flesh coming to worship God. Can you imagine a new humanity with representatives from every nation and language? Though diverse in background, they have everything in common. They are now perfectly united in purpose. They are together celebrating ultimate beauty and truth. And I, I've had the extreme privilege of, of visiting worship contexts in six different languages other than English. And, I mean, it's, it's enough to make you cry with tears of joy. It bolsters your faith like nothing else because you're reminded of just how great our God is and how powerful his gospel is. Here I am in this room with, you know, people with whom I can only have broken conversation. And yet I grasp enough of what they're preaching or singing about to know that we have everything in common. And the brotherly love is palpable. We try to outdo one another in showing honor and gladness fills our souls because just being in each other's presence for a few hours is a prophetic foretaste of the glorious day of universal worship spoken of here on these pages. It makes you want to cross more cultural and geographic and economic barriers and find ways to harvest a wider grain offering of worshipers for the Lord, to find all the brothers and sisters and bring them home. Well, the vision isn't quite ended yet. Last, in verse 24, we see the judgment of the nations. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. This is really a shift in tone, isn't it? It's like we stepped out of a, a, cheer, a cheerful wedding ceremony, and then right outside the church we see fresh graves being dug. 
Perhaps the thought of this makes you quite sad. Actually, I'd, I'd be worried about you if it didn't. But let that be tempered also with a sense of the appropriateness of this picture. I want to encourage you to not in any way be ashamed of the doctrine of hell because Jesus wasn't ashamed of it. Jesus warned us frequently about hell and on at least one occasion he used this passage to do so. As we said before, God is in the business of remaking this world. And if someone refuses to follow the king, why would that person want to live in his realm? If you chose to separate yourself from the God in whom every good thing is found, what else is there in the end than torment? But even more to the point, if you will not accept God's wrath being absorbed by the suffering servant, Jesus, on your behalf, then nothing remains for rebels but to personally experience the infinite magnitude of their crimes against the Holy One. This is hard for us to wrap our minds around, but I don't think it will always be like that. For now, we're, we're so close to God's enemies, right? And, and we ourselves were God's enemies until we encountered Christ. And we don't know who of these people will be redeemed in the end. It's not ours to, to see that. And so it, the best analogy I can come up with is that it's, it's kind of like we're inside of a crime movie, like one where the, the protagonist is a mob boss or, or a brilliantly talented villain, right? And so your shared humanity makes you kind of cheer for this person, even though he or she is winning by doing things that are illegal or immoral. But then when justice is finally served at the end of the movie and this anti-hero gets shot or hauled off to prison, part of you wishes that it wasn't so. They were such a compelling character, right? But then we turn the movie off and we actually think about it and we know that this is how the world should be in the end. There shouldn't be criminals running the city. And so it is in the drama of redemptive history. We would have a better understanding if we'd be able to step outside the movie, so to speak. Well, Revelation 6 does give us an outside perspective from heaven, where the souls of martyrs cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They cry out because they see this contrast between the holiness of God and the way that this world is. And their cry is heard because God too cannot abide evil to contaminate life for his children forever. But why should the citizens of the world to come go out and look on this horror? Are they gloating? No. We see no trace of that. Is God threatening them? Is he wanting to warn them away from rebellion in the future? Like, oh, look what happens. No. We know from elsewhere in Scripture that wonderfully we will be done with sin by then. We will be morally perfected by the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll be free from even the possibility of corruption. So what's going on then? Couldn't God just wipe our memories 
of, of the reality of this alternate destination? I'm sure he could. But graciously, he doesn't. I think what's going on here is that instead, for all of eternity, we will be conscious of the horror from which we were rescued. And our salvation will always remain a precious and a wondrous thing. We'll remember the terrible cost at which our salvation was purchased as Jesus became sin and suffered the torments of hell for us. And finally, in that place, we'll be able to fully turn from arrogantly scrutinizing how God rules his world. Instead, we'll just be awestruck, humbled, and grateful to be forever his. And even now, awareness of this fate of the rebels should make us take the gathering of the nations quite seriously. Because if people are not gathered to his mercy, the stakes are eternally high. So what do we do with this message from God in Isaiah that we're studying today? First, we have to answer the question, is your life built around the sign that has been set by God among humanity? Have you looked in faith on Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, the suffering servant, the risen conqueror? Is the sign of his finished work written not only on the pages of history, but on the pages of your personal history? If not, that's where you have to start. See God's glory in Christ. Turn from rebellion to worship of this God who knows your works and your thoughts, and he invites you to come. For all of us, the book of Isaiah, as I've tried to depict, is a huge and a colorful painting. It shows us our story, our family's story, from creation to new creation, from exodus to new exodus, from garden to garden, from Jerusalem to New Jerusalem, from curse to blessing, from sadness to singing. And just before the, the finale here, the final resolution, we find this great work of missions drawn out for us in epic terms. So we at Maple Avenue, what should we be focused on in this time? Should we be focused on our spiritual growth as individuals and our building up of each other? Should we be focused on the health of our local church? Should we be focused on outreach to our immediate neighbors and our community? Yes, and amen to all of these. But that's not all. If we miss out on the big picture of the ingathering of the nations, we'll be drifting through our Christian life a bit off kilter, a bit confused and insular in our approach to things. Our understanding of God will be a bit domesticated. We'll be serving not quite the Lord of the cosmos, more like a, a God somewhat made in our own image. He may look strangely Canadian or suburban. He may happen to share all of your personal priorities. But the God of the Bible is much bigger than that. He is the God of the rich and the poor, the nomad and the factory worker, the farmer and the call center worker. He's the God of the Turkish and the Kurdish, the Hutu and the Tutsi, the Bamar and the Rohingya, 
this God breaks through the veils of false religion and secular humanism, animism and nihilism. He puts an end to worship of other people and worship of ourselves. He is the Lord, and his glory he will not give to another. So if you neglect the work of missions, the ingathering of nations will still progress perfectly according to his plan. But your worship will be anemic and myopic. It will have a small view of God and the resultant small amount of joy. You see, it's the vastness of God's purposes that we see in Isaiah 66. We see that this is his gracious work and that he is bringing history to a close in this way. That should make us want to get to work ourselves, to join in an effort that we know he's promised to bless. So think about what joyful roles might await you in respect to this ingathering of nations. Will you spend down your wealth to see God's glory declared where it's never been heard? There could not be a more certain investment. Will you give our culture's most prized commodity, your time, as you set some aside weekly to pray fervently and specifically for missions? I promise that your joy would triple compared to the experience of whatever it is you're missing out on at that time. For a minority of you who are uniquely gifted and who are humble enough to submit to rigorous preparation, are you willing to leave family, familiarity, and the future you always dreamed of as you pursue any and every means possible to bring your brothers and sisters in from the nations? Your sacrifice would not be in vain. And as you delight yourself in this limitless God, in his global purposes, he will give you the desires of your heart. And one day, we'll all celebrate together in the endless dawn of the new heavens and new earth. Let me pray. God, these are beautiful and sweeping realities, but we're so used to thinking just in, in terms of the, the local borders, the, the immediately pressing things that fill our weeks with busyness. So would you lift our eyes, God, graciously retune our worship so that we would deeply care about your glory among the nations. Align our choices and our actions with your desires expressed on these pages. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.